Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is your host, Jordan Goodman. My guest this hour is Richard Duncan. Uh, he is the publisher of the Macro Watch newsletter. He's the author of several books, one called The Dollar Crisis, another one called The New Depression, uh, and he has a newsletter that describes all kinds of global economic situations. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Richard. Jordan, thank you for having me on. Just give us a bit of your career leading up to what you're doing now so people have a sense of your background. All right, so uh, I grew up in Kentucky, went to Vanderbilt, ended up backpacking around the world immediately after that, and I saw Asia in early 1984. And Asia was booming economically. And so I realized, go east, young man. So after a couple of years in business school in the U.S., I flew to Hong Kong and found a job with a stockbroking company and became a securities analyst and have spent most of my career in Asia since 1986, uh, working for stockbroking companies, also fund management companies. Uh, eventually, I worked for the World Bank in Washington for a couple of years during the Asia crisis and later became the global head of investment strategy for ABN AMRO Asset Management, based in London, looking at all asset classes globally. And along the way, I've written three books on the global economic crisis, and now I produce MacroWatch, which is a video newsletter. Very good. And people can find out more about that at richardduncaneconomics.com. So let's kind of take a look at the overall picture here. Kind of describe the state of the world economy before the coronavirus hit, and then we can talk about after it hit. But talk about where we stood before the virus hit. Well, so before the virus hit, the U.S. economy was in reasonably good shape. Not really very good, but okay. But you have to keep in mind that the Fed had relaunched quantitative easing back in September. QE4 started in September. And at that, from October onward, they were printing, creating $60 billion a month. So QE4 was supporting the economy. And also recall that last year, the government's budget deficit had climbed up to $1 trillion. So the economy was getting a lot of support from both the fiscal side and the monetary side. And it was still just doing just okay rather than really booming. Okay, and then uh, the, the coronavirus hit in the United States basically in kind of February and March and then got more intense. Uh, and it was really kind of a surprise. People were not really prepared for it. What was the economic impact of the coronavirus? Well, so I think here it's, it's useful to understand that our economic system works very differently now than it did in the past. I mean, in the past, I mean, back in the days when money was actually backed by gold um, up until, let's say, 1971. So since that time, credit growth has become the major driver of economic growth. So if you look back even to 1950, any time credit in the U.S. adjusted for inflation grew by less than 2%, the economy went into a recession. And the recession didn't end until 
another huge wave of credit growth occurred and pulled the economy out of a recession again. And so that happened nine times between 1952 and 2008. And every time credit grew less than 2%, the economy went into recession. So our, our economy, total credit in the U.S., and, and by total credit, total credit is the same thing as total debt. One person's asset is another person's liability. That's, so that's government debt, household sector debt, corporate debt, financial sector debt. All the debt in the country first went above $1 trillion in 1964. And by 2007, it had expanded 50 times from $1 trillion to $50 trillion of debt in just 43 years. And so it was that credit growth that generated the economic growth in the U.S. And the U.S. growth helped fuel the global economy. But ultimately, it blew into a, a, a big economic bubble. And when the private sector couldn't repay its debt in 2008, that, that bubble started to implode. And the government at that point had to respond with enormous budget deficits, topping more than $1 trillion a year for four years in a row. And the Fed had to jump in with quantitative easing on a massive scale. They created $3.5 trillion between 2007 and 2014. And to put that into perspective, during the first 93 years of the Fed's existence, it had only created $900 billion. Over the next seven years, it expanded the amount of money it created by five times. So it went from $900 billion to $4.5 trillion in, in just seven years. So that extraordinary expansion of monetary policy helped finance the massive fiscal stimulus, and that prevented the economy from collapsing into a depression in 2008 and generated growth in the 12 years between that crisis and this crisis. And the economy, unemployment was extremely low. And the most interesting thing that, that we learned from that, or the most surprising thing, is that all that money creation by the central bank in the U.S. and other central banks all around the world, it didn't lead to high rates of inflation. Uh, the, we were all taught that if the central bank creates a great deal of money, then it's inevitably going to lead to very high rates of inflation. But as I just mentioned, the Fed's balance sheet expanded by five times, and the Fed was more concerned with deflation most of the time since 2008 than it was worried about inflation. So Why that did it not create inflation? I mean, this was not only happening here, but this was happening with central banks around the world, the ECB and the Bank of Japan and China. They were all printing money as well. So why has this not caused the inflation that Milton Friedman would have uh, predicted? Right. He said inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, but it's yeah. not because there are other factors that also affect the price level. And the dominant factor in the world today affecting prices is globalization. Mm -hmm. In the past, back in Milton's day, the U.S. economy was a relatively closed domestic economy. The U.S. didn't have big trade deficits up until the early 1980s. Before that time, when we were on a, the Bretton Woods system, trade between countries had the balance. But once the Bretton Woods system broke down, the U.S. discovered that it was able to buy, other thing, buy things from other countries and pay for those things by giving them U.S. government bonds. And so by the mid-1980s, the U.S. had a, 
a trade deficit equivalent to 3.5% of U.S. GDP, which was entirely unprecedented. And by 2006, it had grown to 6% of GDP. And what that means is back in Milton's day, if the U.S. government had a very large budget deficit, and if the Fed created a lot of money to finance that deficit, then very quickly all of that stimulus would have overheated the U.S. economy. It would have led to full employment and full capacity of uh, full full utilization of the industrial capacity in the steel mills and the car plants, for instance. And pretty soon, with full capacity of labor and industry, that would lead to higher inflation. Wages would begin to spiral upward, and the cost of manufactured goods would also spiral upward. Which is what but happened now, in the late 70s, right? That's basically what that's, happened in the late 70s. That's, that's right. Uh, and, but now things are very different. Because we no longer, our economy is no longer a closed domestic economy only comprised of the American public. It's now a global economy. And in the global economy today, there are nearly 8 billion people, 2 billion of whom live on less than $3 a day, who would probably feel lucky if they could land a job earning $10 a day. And so this has been extraordinarily deflationary. It's put extreme downward pressure on wages in the U.S., and at the same time, there's a tremendous glut of industrial capacity all around the world because of China's industrial capacity. They have an enormous economic bubble there. So you're saying that the deflationary forces of globalization, in effect, were stronger than the inflationary effect of all this money printing around the world. That's right. The deflationary forces of globalization offset the inflationary forces of, that would have resulted from all of the money creation and the huge budget deficits uh, that, that we've experienced since 2008. And, and that's not as going result, away, right? I mean, the, the globalization is not going away. There may be some threats to it, but it's not as though we're going to go back to a Fortress America situation. So those deflationary forces will continue, is what you're saying. Let's hope they do continue. Uh, I think you're right. They're not going to go away. They're going to be scaled back some, the extent to which they're scaled back will determine the extent to which we get a pickup in, in inflation. But I yeah. think as you, I think I agree with you, it's not going to go away. So we probably are not, just because we've had this new extraordinary expansion of money creation by the Fed recently, and, which, and we're going to have much more of that over the year ahead, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to get high rates of consumer price inflation. We didn't last time after 2008. So, so tell us what happened just... when the coronavirus hit. How much did Fed credit expand? Their balance sheet was up to roughly $5 trillion before all this. What has happened since the coronavirus with this massive monetary stimulus? So the Fed's balance sheet peaked at $4.5 trillion when they ended the third round of quantitative easing, which was in October 2014. And they left it there for a few years, and then they started quantitative tightening in October 2017. And they actually shrank their assets, their balance sheet, down to something more like $3.7 trillion. So they destroyed something like $750 billion through quantitative tightening. And then the stock market rebelled and started, it fell 20%, I think, in December 2018, and then the stock market, then the Fed did this extraordinary 
monetary policy U-turn and eventually stopped doing quantitative tightening. And just very shortly after they ended quantitative tightening, they started their new round of quantitative easing in uh, in September, October last year. So, So since they started... QE4 in September 2019, the Fed's balance sheet's grown from something like $3.7 trillion now to $7.1 trillion. So I think that's a 90% increase in between September and today. In, in nine so, months or so. Yeah, that's unprecedented to have it go up that much that fast, right? Right. Again, keep in mind, so just year to date, just this year, the Fed's created $3 trillion. And again, remember that in the first 93 years of their existence, they had only created $900 billion in total up to 2007. Yeah. So it is an extraordinary expansion of uh, the Fed's balance sheet and the amount of credit that the Fed has extended or the amount of money that they have created. So you have a name for this. You call this creditism as opposed to capitalism, right? That's right. I think our once, once dollars were no longer backed by gold, then our economic system evolved from cr- capitalism into creditism. Capitalism was an economic system where it was driven by investment and saving. Businessmen would invest. Some of them would make a profit. They, they would save that profit, or in other words, accumulate capital, hence capitalism, and repeat. It was pretty slow and difficult, but that's how capitalism worked. That's not the way our system works anymore. The drivers of our economic system have become credit creation and consumption, and more credit creation and more consumption. And that generates much more rapid economic growth, not only in the U.S., but this system has created a global economic boom over the last three decades that's literally pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. The problem is, is creditism requires credit growth to survive. And the private sector had hit the point back in 2008 already where it just couldn't take on any more debt because it didn't earn enough income to service the debt that it had borrowed already. And at that point, the government had to jump in. Okay, we're going to have to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Richard Duncan. Uh, He is the author of several books on the global economic crisis. He also has a newsletter called Macro Watch, of which he's the publisher. You can find out more about it at his website, richardduncaneconomics.com. We'll be back after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. 
There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Richard Duncan. He's the author of several books, one called The Dollar Crisis, another one called The New Depression, and he has a newsletter uh, called Macro Watch. Welcome back to the show, Richard. Thank you. Tell people a little bit about the newsletter and the special offer you have for them. Yes, great. So MacroWatch is a video newsletter. Every couple of weeks I upload a new video. It's essentially me making a PowerPoint presentation describing something important going on in the global economy and how that's likely to affect the financial markets, stocks, bonds, property, currencies, commodities. And so if you're... I'd encourage your listeners to visit my website and take a look. Um, If they subscribe, they will receive one new video every couple of weeks for the next year. And they'll also have access to all the videos in the archives. Uh, Now more than well above 50 hours of videos and uh, several different courses. So if they visit the website and and would like to subscribe, if they click on the subscribe button, uh, they'll they can subscribe at a 50% discount if they will use the discount coupon code ANSWERS. Very good. Well, thank you very much. And again, the website is richardduncaneconomics.com. And the code is ANSWERS. Very good. Okay, so now we talked about creditism. So there's been this massive amount of debt built up and accelerated dramatically in 2020. Not only the American Fed, but the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, all around the world. So why couldn't it just go on forever and just keep expanding credit? What could go wrong under the circumstance? Well, so the situation now, 
represents probably the greatest economic experiment in history. Already, the U.S. government has increased its debt this year by $3 trillion, and the Fed has effectively financed that by creating $3 trillion of new money and buying, buying bonds with it, government bonds and mortgage-backed securities. And it's not finished. The stimulus runs out at the end of July, and the, the government is going to have to pass another very large stimulus bill, or, or the economy is going to collapse into a depression with such high rates of unemployment and the business sector being devastated. When this crisis started, if the government had not responded as it has, as it has at, the, at that time, on March 15th, I published a video called Recession or Depression. And the answer to that question depended entirely on the, the size and the speed of the government's policy response. I advocated massive fiscal deficit spending, lending money to essentially anyone in the economy who asked to borrow it, and that the Fed should also finance it with money creation. And luckily, they did that. That's luck. They came through, they acted very quickly. The government effectively provided money to households so they could pay their rent and mortgage. They paid, provided financing for small and medium-sized companies and to large corporations. And consequently, all the banks in the United States still exist. Had they not done that, there would have been such a wave of debt defaults that all of the banks in the United States would no longer exist today. All of the banks would have failed. It was this government intervention that has kept the banking system from collapsing. And what do you so, think the next stimulus, the first stimulus was roughly $3 trillion from the government. Now, as you say, everything's running out at the end of July. What do you think the next stimulus should be, the same size? I think it's going to end up being at least the same size. Perhaps not in the first bill, maybe over a couple of different bills. But by the time we get through this, they will have spent at least $6 trillion, I would imagine, uh, keeping the economy intact. And that's exactly what they had to do. If they, America is a very wealthy country. It can easily afford to spend on this scale. I mean, for instance, in 2019, the GDP last year was roughly, let's say, $21 trillion. And the government debt to GDP, the ratio of debt to GDP, was something like 110%. Well, even if they had to spend another if they had to spend $21 trillion to keep the economy from imploding, that would double the size of the debt so that that would have taken the government's debt to GDP up to 220%. Well, Japan's government debt to GDP is, is already well above that level. It's more like 250, 260% now. Yeah. So we're not going to have to spend anywhere near $21 trillion. That's not what I'm suggesting, but I'm saying we could. So if we have to spend six trillion or even ten trillion dollars to keep our economy intact, then that's just the price we're going to have to pay. I think we can afford it. So you're saying uh, that deficits don't matter then, basically, that we can we've added this year uh, three trillion, now we add another three trillion, so we're up to twenty six, twenty seven trillion in the deficit, the, the outstanding debt. If we go up to thirty trillion, you just could keep going up. There's no limit as to how big the deficit can go without affecting things. Well, so this is why I call this the greatest economic experiment in history. If we come out the other end of this crisis, say two years from now, with thirty trillion dollars of government debt, and with the Fed's balance sheet 
expanding in line, say also growing by somewhere between $6 trillion and even $10 trillion. If we go, th- if we, if the government spends that much money and the Fed creates that much money and we don't end up getting high rates of consumer price inflation, then I think there are very important lessons we need to draw from that. For instance, it, it does suggest that the government can borrow on this enormous scale and that the Fed can finance that on an enormous scale without creating inflation. Therefore, we need to think through the implications of what, what that would mean. And for me, what that, would, what that should teach us, I believe, is that we have the, you could call it a once-in-history opportunity for the U.S. government to finance very large-scale investment in new industries and new technologies. For instance, I believe that's exactly what we are going to find. I believe that a couple of years from now, we're not going to have high rates of inflation. So what I would like to see is the government financing $10 trillion of new investment over the next 10 years in industries like biotech, genetic engineering, artificial intelligence, robotics, neurosciences, green energy. So, so Which is what China is doing, right? China is doing that now. Precisely. If we don't do this, we are going to be overtaken by China in very short order. By, yeah. the, middle, by the, the middle of the next decade, by 2035, say, the United States could find itself as a second-rate vulnerable has-been power. You're China. saying that, that that investment should be done on top of the investment now being made just to keep everything afloat, basically. Because the money with the $3 trillion has pretty much disappeared now. The CARES Act money has been pretty much spent. And now we need a new $3 trillion just to keep us afloat. You're saying that an additional $10 trillion on top of that to invest in the new industries. Is that right? That's right, over the next 10 years. So if we can spend $6 trillion in a year and a half, and I think it would show how easy it would be for us to invest $10 trillion over the next decade. And if we invested money on that scale, this would induce a new technological revolution. It would create technological miracles and medical breakthroughs. I mean, it's not inconceivable that we could cure all the diseases. I mean, for instance, right now, the National Cancer Institute, their annual budget is... $6 billion a year. They, that's the main U.S. agency charged with curing cancer. They get $6 billion a year. Well, 600,000 Americans die of cancer every year. So the Fed is creating $6 billion. You know, at one point in one week, they created practically $600 billion in one week in March. Yeah. So there, we could potentially cure cancer and Alzheimer's and all the other diseases radically expand life expectancy. And therefore, therefore these, these investments would pay for themselves many times over. It would supercharge the economy. And but this money has to go through the private sector. It goes, it's not as though government researchers are going to solve cancer. It's through the government that the money goes to the private sector where the real research happens. Is that correct? I suppose that the best way to structure this would be as um, the government could set up joint venture companies with 
the 10,000 most promising American entrepreneurs, the best scientists and the best entrepreneurs in the country. And the government would fund these companies lavishly and keep a 60% equity stake. And the entrepreneurs could keep the 40% equity stake and manage the companies. And when one of these companies invents the cure for cancer, you list this company on NASDAQ for five or $10 trillion and it pays for the entire program and will cure cancer. Yeah. And, and people work many years longer. And Has therefore, this been done before? Is this similar to the Chinese model or the Chinese is pretty much run by the government the whole way? Well, this was, it's, it's mixed in China, but the government has a very heavy control on what happens there. Yeah. But yeah. China's rise is, you know, China has already mastered 5G. They won the 5G race. If they win the artificial intelligence race, as they've won with 5G, then they are going to have an insurmountable lead. We will never catch up with them again. Whoever achieves artificial general intelligence first, where the machines are equally as intelligent and capable as humans, then after that it goes exponential. And So is there anything we can do about that? I mean, we can't stop China from investing in artificial intelligence. So last year, for the first time, China invested more in research and development than the United States did. And based on current trends, by the end of this decade, by 2030, they'll invest 40% more that year, and the gap will just keep widening. So yes, there is something that we can do about it, and what we can do about it is invest much more. Yeah. China's prospering because they invest, their government invests, they have a plan to develop these industries, and that's what the United States needs. And if we do that, it will be like Sputnik. We had our Sputnik moment back in 1957, 58, and we responded. The government invested very heavily in NASA and missile technology, and we won. And yeah. eventually spent so much on intercontinental ballistic missiles that the Soviet Union couldn't keep up, and they collapsed. We can also beat the Chinese at this game. It just requires a rethinking of you know, the country's swung too far, far too far in the direction of believing that the government uh, can, can, can't do anything right. Um, we saw in the 60s that uh, we landed on the moon first. Yeah. And a lot of enormous, fantastic technology came out of that. So uh, we need to rethink our views on what the government's capable of doing. And two years from now, if we find out that they've spent $6 trillion or $10 trillion keeping our economy from collapsing due to the coronavirus crisis, then this is going to show us that they can do this again over a 10-year period, investing in new industries and technologies. The money they're spending now is just keeping the economy from collapsing. Right. It's money that's replacing other money that won't ever be earned or spent. But So that's not going to propel the economy or propel our industries or technology forward. We're going to have to have a plan. Now, just back in November, even, um, Charles Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, made a speech in front of the defense establishment in Washington at an AI conference. And he said that he was going to propose that over the next five years, the United States invest $100 billion in the industries of the future. 
mm-hmm. like artificial intelligence. Okay, well, so that, that's a little step in the right direction, but $100 billion over five years is just not going to do it. China would still be spending much more than the United States on research and development. I believe we could spend, now I'll see, I'll see your 100, 100 billion and I'll raise you 9.9 trillion. Yes. We could spend 10 trillion over the next 10 years. We could easily afford it. And we'd probably end up in a situation where we could possibly, it would be so profitable, we could probably pay off the entire national debt. Very good. All right, we're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Richard Duncan. He's the author of several books on global economic crises. He has a newsletter called Macro Watch. Uh, you can get one uh, at a 50% discount if you use the subscriber code ANSWERS by going to his website, richardduncaneconomics.com. We'll be back after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth in Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth in Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, Richard Duncan. 
is author of several books, one called The Dollar Crisis, another one called The New Depression. Uh, he also has a newsletter called Macro Watch, which you can subscribe to at a 50% discount if you use the code ANSWERS at his website, richardduncaneconomics.com. Welcome back to the show, Richard. Thank you, Jordan. So we've described the situation of massive creditism, as you call it, massive debt by governments, by individuals, by businesses around the world. Tell us a little bit about the investment implications of that and what's going to do well and what's not going to do well. So let's start with the stock market. Uh, we've had a, a soaring stock market for a long time that it fell on the coronavirus and it's kind of come back. It's been moving up and down based on the outlook for the coronavirus. But in this era of creditism, what is the, uh, the outlook for the stock market? Well, so really you can group almost all of the asset classes together. And all of the asset classes are floating on an ocean of credit. If credit expands, they all move higher. If credit contracts, they all plunge lower. And at this point, the private sector can't take on more debt. So it's going to depend on how much the government's debt expands by. And that is something we don't know for, for certain. If the government continues to, to, to support the economy with these very large rescue packages and the Fed continues to create the money to finance them, then all the asset prices are likely to keep going higher. You know, uh, of course, things could go wrong. If, uh, of course, if there, many things can go wrong with investing, as, as you well know. If the coronavirus suddenly took a turn for the much worse, for instance, or any other number of things could cause this to come off the tracks. But barring something like that disaster scenario, it's all going to depend on how much money the government creates. Now, so we're, it looks like we're going to be in for another round of government rescue bills, as we were discussing earlier, perhaps another $3 trillion. And it's very likely the Fed will create another $3 trillion to finance that, if necessary. They're going to, the Fed will create as much money as it takes to enable the government to finance the large budget deficits without yep. driving up interest rates. Would you call all this, Richard, a bubble, but we're going through a credit bubble? The economy has uh, has had a credit bubble for uh, 20 years, 25 years. It's hard to say. The, the credit bubble, the asset price inflation. So let's roll this back to a moment, for a moment back to 2000, after 2008. The government had these very large budget deficits, but that still wasn't enough to make credit grow by more than 2%. You know, I just, anytime credit grows by less than 2%, the economy goes into recession. So it was just growing just barely above 2%. So the Fed stepped in, and, and credit growth drives economic growth. But when it doesn't grow enough, the Fed stepped in and drove interest rates to very low levels, zero, and created $3.5 trillion up to 2014 in order to create asset price inflation as yeah. a supplement to credit growth. So they were directing the economy by pushing up asset prices in order to create a wealth effect that would make the public feel wealthier and enable them to spend more and to support consumption and therefore economic growth. And, and now so they're they, doing it on steroids. They're doing it even faster and much more now. Right. That's but right. I'm, I'm just saying, let's, put, let's make you Fed chairman for the moment. 
is this the right thing to do, to push up asset prices, to print trillions of dollars, expand the balance sheet like this to finance these government debt? Is this the right thing to do, or is there a, a Milton Friedman in you that's saying this is creating a bubble that's unsustainable and we should stop doing it? No, I think this is the right thing to do. I, I, we need to understand that we need to leave the economic orthodoxy of years, ages gone by in the past where it belongs. We no longer have, you know, when gold was, when money was backed by gold, that was one economic environment. And that placed constraints on the policies that were available to policymakers back in, in that time. And all of the economic theory that grew up in the 19th and 20th century was based on the premise that gold is money. And the Fed couldn't create limitless amounts of money because it, didn't, it had to have gold to back all the dollars that cre it created. But that's no longer the environment we live in. We live in an environment where money is no longer backed by gold. The Fed yeah. is free to create as much of it as it pleases, just as long as it doesn't cause inflation. And right now it doesn't cause inflation because of globalization. So this is a completely different economic environment, a different economic system, I would say, creditism rather than capitalism. And we must have credit growth. If we don't, if credit contracts the way that it did, for instance, starting in 1930, at that time, gold was backed by money. The Fed couldn't print endless amounts of money. And we collapsed into a Great Depression. And that yeah. depression lasted for 10 years. It never ended by itself. It never recovered due to market forces. It only ended when the government started spending huge sums of money to fight World War II, which yeah. the Fed helped finance with more paper money creation. And by the time the war was up, during World War II, the government, government spending increased five times. Uh, government, the government's debt increased five times in four years. And the Fed's holdings of government bonds increased 11 times in four years. And all of that government debt and all of that paper money the Fed created created uh, that was invested in war, war capacity and it created uh, an economic boom that lasted 20 25 years into the 70s yeah and so the lesson we need to now compare that with what happened in 2008 credit started to default people couldn't repay the debt the banking system was on the verge of collapse rather than doing what they did in the 1930s which was very little this time, they responded with shock and awe, trillion-dollar budget deficits, trillions and trillions of dollars of money creation, and we didn't collapse into a depression. We had the longest economic expansion since the war. Yeah. So you're saying they did the right thing, in fact. Let, let's talk about gold specifically. Since we went off the gold standard in 1971, gold has gone up, but lately it's gone up some. It's $1,700 an ounce or something like that. Do you think people should have... Uh, a decent portion of their portfolio in gold in this current environment? So look, I like gold. Uh, I like to buy it and, and give it to my wife. She really likes it. And it looks nice. And I believe everybody should have some gold. Uh, you know, you never know when you might need to get out of town fast. Or is, is it insurance policy? But should people put a significant part of their investments in gold? I don't think they should. Gold... I believe gold is probably going to keep moving higher. It had better, because if it doesn't, it's going to fall very hard again. You know, it, it took quite a tumble. What was it back in 2011, 2012? Yeah, 
it, it peaked at about 1900 and then went down to about 1100 or something like that, right? Right. It's not the first time gold has had that sort of crash. So gold probably will keep going higher as the Fed keeps creating more and more money. But there's a chance that it won't. And if it loses its momentum, it could really crash again. One thing about gold is if it becomes too expensive, people stop buying it for jewelry. People in India, for example, love to accumulate lots of gold. But if they can't afford to buy gold, they, they can't afford to buy gold. And that knocks a lot of the support out from under gold. So you're saying so that, the price of gold is kind of like an indicator of how much credit is expanding. And if credit starts not expanding as much, then gold prices would go down. Is that correct? Well, that's right. If, if the Fed doesn't keep creating a lot of money and the government doesn't keep borrowing a lot of money, then yes, the gold will not only stop going up, it could potentially go down hard. But I'm not forecasting that's going to happen. I'm just warning people that that could happen. Now, rather than having a huge amount of your portfolio in gold, uh, which you have to store somewhere and pay someone to keep and guard for you, I think it's more sensible for most people to own land with a house on top to rent out. If gold goes up, then land will go up for the same reason. And, of course, if gold goes down, the land will also go down. But at least you have a house on top of your land that you can rent out to someone and generate cash flow, uh, whereas gold has negative cash flow. So, yeah. so would you like gold mining shares or GLD? Or are there other ways to buy gold than only physical gold? Is that a better way to do it? That I'd say that increases your risk quite uh, uh, quite extraordinarily. You most individuals who are interested in in gold are not qualified to analyze the companies, gold mining companies. So yeah. you, you're not just buying gold; you're also buying gold mines and the, the management of the gold mining companies is something you don't have any control over at all. So that makes your investment exponentially more risky than just buying gold itself. Yeah. And are there other commodities that you think people should put money into, silver or platinum or other kinds of commodities that would benefit by this increased uh, growth of credit? Um, land. Buy land and you can grow commodities on top of the land and benefit twice. Uh-huh. And how about currencies? The dollar has been relatively strong because of a fear trade, people putting money into dollars as a safety haven. Is the dollar going to remain strong? I think the dollar, a lot of people forecast the dollar standard is going to collapse any moment now. But the dollar is going to remain the world's international leading international reserve currency. And, and here's why. The reason that the dollar is the international reserve currency is because the U.S. has a very large trade deficit. And every, that deficit throws dollars off into the global economy. And once they are created, they don't disappear. So use China as an example. Just a few years, two or three years ago, China's trade surplus with the U.S. peaked at more than $400 billion in one, one year, one year alone. I think there were two years in a row when it was above $400 billion. So that meant that Chinese manufacturers sold their goods in the U.S. They got paid in dollars. They took the dollars back to China, and normally that would have pushed up the value of the Chinese currency when they converted the dollars into the Chinese currency, the yuan. But the, the central bank of China intervened and bought all the dollars going into China at a fixed exchange rate so that the currency didn't appreciate. 
And they did that by creating their own money. But so the, the Central Bank of China ended up with an extra $400 billion that year. And what can they do with it? Well, they can burn it. They could bury it under the Great Wall. Or they can buy U.S. Treasury bonds with it. And of course, that's what they did. And you might be thinking, well, they could buy euros. And that is true. They could buy some euros. But whoever they bought the euros from, they would then have the dollars. The dollars don't disappear. It's like farmland. The farmer can sell his land. It doesn't disappear. Same with dollars. The trade deficit creates this vast pool of dollars that circulate around the world, and they're not going to disappear ever. And as long as the U.S. trade deficit continues to be large, the pool of dollars in the world is going to get larger and larger. China's currency is never going to become the international reserve currency because China doesn't have a trade deficit. There aren't very many Chinese yuan circulating around in the world. And that's yeah. not going to change any time in the foreseeable future. So the dollar, is going to, dollar standard is here for decades to come. It's not going to collapse. And it's being, it's being pretty carefully managed. The, the central banks of the world talk to each other. The treasury secretaries of the world also talk to each other. And they, they guide these currencies. So when people say the dollar is going to collapse... You have to ask, collapse against what? In Europe, the ECB is creating uh, trillions of euros. And the same in Japan. The BOJ has created far more yen relative to the size of their economy than any other country. And the same in China. The PBOC creates vast amounts of money. Before this crisis started, the, the Chinese central bank's balance sheet was the largest of any central bank in the world. So they're all creating a great deal of money. And that's why we've had so much asset price inflation uh, in terms of stocks and and practically everything else. Very good. We have to take one more break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Richard Duncan. Uh, He has a newsletter called Macro Watch. uh, And you can find out more about it at his website, richardduncaneconomics.com. We'll be back after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. 
Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Richard Duncan. He is the author of a newsletter called Macro Watch, which you can find out about at his website, richardduncaneconomics.com. Welcome back to the show, Richard. Thank you. So we talked about the outlook for uh, various investments, but let's talk about interest rates. We have interest rates in a large part of the world in negative territory. They have been there for quite a while. The U.S. is very low. Uh, are rates going to go down or up based on the current uh, creation of credit? Normally, you think this huge creation of credit would mean interest rates would be soaring, as they did in the late 70s. So what's going on with interest rates? So interest rates are just really the cost of renting money. Uh, back in the old days when, when gold was money and the governments couldn't create more of it, if the government had a big budget deficit and it had to borrow a lot of money, then that tended to push up interest rates because there was only a fixed amount of money. And if the government borrowed a lot of it, it pushed up the cost of renting it. But now things have changed. Back then, it was just the demand for money that determined interest rates. But now it's not only the demand for money, it's also the supply of money with the Fed and the other central banks able to create uh, as much money as they want, you now have the situation where interest rates are determined by where the, the supply and demand for money meet. And what we're experiencing now is that the Fed is creating as much money as necessary to finance the government's budget deficits at low interest rates. Now, this, is, this needs to continue because creditism needs credit growth to survive. And if interest rates move significantly higher, then people won't be able to afford to take on more debt, and debt could even contract, and that would throw the economy into depression. Also, higher interest rates would be very bad for the stock market. If the stock market crashes, that also would create a huge negative wealth effect and uh, throw the economy into a severe recession or worse. And those two things combined, contracting credit and crashing asset prices, would certainly tip the economy into a depression. So the Fed is going to work very hard to make sure that interest rates don't go up. And it's possible that they may announce yield curve control in the not-too-distant future. Yield curve control has been in place in Japan now since 2016. And here's the difference between quantitative easing and yield curve control. With quantitative easing, the Fed, for instance, tells the world in advance what they've said now is they're going to buy $120 billion of bonds every month for the foreseeable future. And so they announce the amount that they're going to buy. But with yield con curve control, 
Instead, it's saying how much money they're going to print. They say, we are going to hold the yield. The yield on the 10-year government bond now is about, let's say, 1.7%. I think it's, it's lower than that, but 1.7. So they could say, we're going to hold the yield on the 10-year government bond at just uh, 0.4%, or pick, pick your own number. Yeah. And we're, we're going to hold it there by buying as many government bonds as necessary to drive up the price and push down the yield until the yield is 0.4%. And we're going to do that for the next two years, come hell or high water. And that's how yield curve control works. This is kind of what Volcker did. Remember in in the late 70s, they used to target interest rates instead of money supply. And I guess it worked because they pushed rates up. That was what their goal was at the time. Now the goal is to push interest rates down. But we've Uh, done this before, right? Well, and another example is World War II. All during World War II, the Fed had an agreement with the Treasury Secretary. They announced precisely what the yield on the 10-year government bond would be and on a number of other bonds as well. And they held it there. And they held it there, in fact, up until, I think, 1951. Uh, And so the U.S. has practiced yield curve control in the past. And the benefit of this is, so as we've discussed the the government's probably going to have another budget deficit of perhaps $3 trillion. Well, the, the Congressional Budget Office is projecting that the budget deficit for the fiscal year 2021, which ends in October, September 30th next year, they're currently projecting the budget deficit is going to be $2.1 trillion. But that's before they take into, effect, into account any new rescue bills. So it's much more likely to be close to $4 trillion after you get through these rescue bills. So the Fed, if the Fed has to finance 100% of this $4 trillion budget deficit next year, creating that much money could blow the stock market into an enormous bubble. And that could be dangerous because it could pop. The beauty of yield curve control that we've seen in Japan, Japan was creating 80 trillion yen a year through quantitative easing. But once they announced yield curve control, they found that they could hold a 10-year Japanese government bond at 0% uh, and spend much less than $80 trillion a year. At the end of last year, they were down to something closer to $20 trillion a year. So it may be possible by using yield curve control, the Fed can hold interest rates where it wants them to be, which is low, and not have to create as much money as it's doing now, which, of course, on, on one level would be good, but the financial markets might not like that. The financial markets like it when the Fed creates an enormous amount of money. They'd like to see the Fed finance the entire budget deficit, whatever it is. Yeah. But the yield curve control might allow them to uh, create much less money and still achieve their objective, which is holding the interest rates at a very low level. So let's kind of sum all this up. We have about two minutes left. All this sounds like a massive amount of manipulation, and there's not a lot of market forces that are allowed to work in a true capital system. It's all how much the Fed is producing and manipulating yields and all that. I mean, ultimately, is this a healthy way of running the economy? So the economy has been managed this way since at least the beginning of World War II. Uh, The government has been managing the economy at the macro level one way or the other through a combination of budget deficits and money creation since for 70, approaching 80 years. So anyone who doesn't understand that needs to rethink their understanding of how the U.S. economy works. The government manages the economy at the macro level, and if they get it wrong, there'll be a depression. But if they get it right, which they did after 2008, 
And so far in this crisis, the coronavirus crisis, they've gotten it right so far. If they manage it right, there's no need for us to collapse in some sort of Austrian economics hell being punished for our sins when we can keep growing the economy. Through government. It still sounds like the market forces have been thrown out and the government's what's running everything. It's almost like communism or something. It's like we're supposed to be a capitalist free market society and it sounds like the government's pretty much running the show. Well, the government is running the show at the macro level, but it's still at the but at the at the micro level, it's still being managed by businesses and individuals making their own decisions about what they want to buy and sell. Yeah, very good. Well, thanks so much. Uh, my guest this hour has been Richard Duncan. He's the author of several books, one called The Dollar Crisis, the other one called The New Depression. You can find out more about his newsletter called Macro Watch by going to his website, richardduncaneconomics.com. Uh, put in the code answers in the subscribe button and you'll get a 50% discount. He's got a lot of very interesting ideas that you really should understand well. So thanks so much for being on the Money Answer Show, Richard. Jordan, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Let's do it again sometime. Thanks again. And we'll be back next week with another edition of the Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.